0: This is Crimes of the Centuries. The year before he died, Harry Oakes made headlines in more than 150 newspapers spanning the US, Canada, and the United Kingdom for one simple reason. He was one of the richest men in the world, so anything that happened in his life seemed fit to print. In 1942, most of the headlines centered around his oldest daughter, who turned 18 that year, and within a few days of that milestone birthday, married a divisive man nearly twice her age, without telling her parents beforehand. The coverage was just what you're probably imagining. Schoolgirl heiress, 18, weds French count twice her age. Maybe you weren't quite imagining that because I didn't mention the man she married was a count, but that's a long story I'll delve into later. What's important to know now is that Nancy Oakes's new husband was a man named Alfred de Marigny. And when word of their nuptials spread, it was controversial for a lot of reasons. For starters, Nancy was Alfred's third wife. His first marriage had lasted just four months, and instead of returning the dowry, as many believed he should have done at the time, he kept it, earning him a reputation as a gold digger. His second wife had been married to one of his good friends when they began sleeping together, and soon after she left her husband and child to marry Alfred, he more or less abandoned her to spend his days sailing aboard a ship he named Concubine. He was known as a cocky and handsome rabble rouser, someone so bold his own father stopped talking to him. Anyway, Harry Oakes had known Alfred because their professional circles overlapped. Harry wasn't thrilled with the marriage, but he adored Nancy, a copper-haired beauty with wide-set eyes who newspapers of the time described as the favorite of his children. So he and his wife Eunice cried and complained about the wedding, but ultimately accepted it. They didn't want to drive a wedge between them and Nancy, who made it clear that if forced to choose, she'd be choosing her new husband. A year and change after the wedding, a house guest found Harry Oaks dead in his bed, his body beaten and charred by fire. For Nancy, it was a double whammy. Around the same time she learned her father died, she learned her husband was accused of killing him. Police told Nancy that Alfred had motive, means, and opportunity, and most damning of all, had left a fingerprint at the crime scene. Thus kicked off one of the most salacious, highest-profile murder trials of the 20th century, one that continues to mystify investigators to this day. Alfred de Marigny was born in 1910 with a huge mouthful of a name that I will not do justice to. He was Marie Alfred Faucereau, the son of a French sugar planter father and a mother from the de Marigny family, which apparently liked to pass out fancy titles so much that Alfred inherited the label Count, though he personally refused to use it. Alfred's parents welcomed him on March 29, 1910, on a little island in the Indian Ocean called Mauritius. If you're ever feeling a little down, Google pictures of this place and it's an instant mood booster. A lush, green paradise surrounded by blue waters. Mark Twain wrote of the island in 1897, quote, You gather that Mauritius was made first and heaven was copied later, end quote. An adult Alfred himself would describe the island as one of the most enchanting places on Earth. Quote, Mountains loomed above the coastline and the reefs that girdled the white sandy beaches formed lagoons of transparent water. Here swam the richest variety of tropical fish in the world. A 3,000-foot dome in the center of the island was evidence of a huge volcano millions of years ago. It must have pleased Mr. Twain to learn that this unique place had been the home of the now-extinct dodo bird, a comic name, almost a figure of myth, End quote. When Alfred was three years old, his world was turned upside down with news that his mother had died. After that, he moved into a large colonial house with his paternal grandmother and two quote-unquote spinster aunts. He rarely saw his father. Alfred later said, quote, I had no memory of her, little knowledge of him. They were not discussed in my presence. Yet, I felt secure in the home of an adoring grandmother, and at some point I stopped asking the questions that had always gone unanswered, end quote. Mauritius has an interesting history that might at first seem tangential, but in reality, it's pretty key in understanding Alfred's upbringing from A Super Quick History of Mauritius, posted by Mr. History on YouTube.
1: Smiling in the waters east of Madagascar is the subtropical island we call Mauritius. For most of history's millennia, the island was uninhabited, and while seafarers from the Middle Ages onward knew of its existence, they never bothered settling there.
0: The island was so remote that no one was keen to settle there. The Dutch came along in 1598 and gave living on the island a go, though that attempt was short-lived. The Dutch were there just long enough to christen the place...
1: Mauritius, after Maurice, the future Prince of Orange, and no, he didn't rule over a piece of fruit. Orange was a state in southern France that the Dutch had controlled for centuries. And speaking of France, it was the French who took command of Mauritius a few years after the Dutch left, under governor La Bourdonnais. Things really got done. The capital Port Louis was built, and flourishing sugarcane plantations were grown. The labourers were slaves, shipped over from mainland Africa.
0: This isn't the only unpleasantness in Mauritius' history. After Britain defeated France in 1810, they took over the island, and though France fought to get it back, they failed. Britain outlawed slavery, but still imported indentured servants from India, which is why Mauritius remains majority Hindu to this day. When Alfred was born there, it was a French and English speaking British colony, but Britain kind of treated it as a red headed stepchild because it was inhabited largely by people of color. This did not bother young Alfred in the slightest. He was essentially raised by a black servant named Emily, whose daughter Julie was his wet nurse. He wrote, quote, Each morning after taking classes from a priest, I was free to play with the children of the black servants who lived in a camp behind the house near a fruit orchard. There, children laughed. Dogs barked and tussled, cats watched, chickens, followed by their broods, roamed in search of food, roosters crowed, ducks, goats, and geese mingled into one heterogeneous family. End quote. In short, even though his language can sound uncomfortably patronizing when reading it today, Alfred, who wrote a memoir in the 1960s, said it never occurred to him to consider the others on the islands as lessers. I mean, no duh, right? But that wasn't the norm when he was in his 20s and 30s, and it was actually his refusal to not treat others as inferiors that would help earn him the controversial reputation that would eventually put him in the crosshairs of a murder investigation. Now, I mentioned earlier that Alfred had been told that his mother died when he was three. That's what he had been told by his father, and more so, his father's family, since his dad wasn't around much as Alfred was growing up. His paternal family seemed loving, yet distant, sending Alfred away to boarding school, where he lived in what he called a cubbyhole, where his days became a blur. The social change was traumatic, Alfred later wrote. Quote, I had been transplanted from a tropical island surrounded by warm and interesting people, into the arid atmosphere of a Jesuit school in frigid Normandy, quote. The boys at the school were in snobbish cliques who mocked Alfred's accents and habits. Alfred had learned to meditate from Hindus on Mauritius, so when he wasn't studying, he would sit on the floor with his legs folded, which only led to more mocking. After secondary school, Alfred passed the entrance exam and was accepted into Cambridge University, but first he went home to Mauritius, where it finally dawned on him that he wasn't treated like the others in his father's family. There was a clear delineation on the island, not only of race, but of class, and Alfred was confused. He loved his friends, but was curious why his family seemed determined to keep him at arm's length. A 15-year-old cousin had a birthday party to which everyone but Alfred was invited. He finally confronted his grandmother and learned the truth. His mother hadn't died after all. She apparently had had an affair with a man when Alfred was a toddler and Alfred's father divorced her. But the family was Catholic and while divorce was a sin, adultery was even worse. It was, Alfred wrote, a damnation. The scandal tainted the whole family so much that Alfred's two quote-unquote spinster aunts were only unmarried because their intended husbands had broken off their engagements after the ordeal. Everyone on the island knew the truth, except for Alfred, whose father wasn't around because he couldn't stand to see his ex-wife in his child's face. Alfred saw his father soon after this revelation, and while he had hoped for a hug and an explanation, all he got was a firm handshake and an awkward lunch. Another cousin named George de Vidalou befriended him, and instead of going to Cambridge, Alfred decided to hang out on the island for a while and attend a two-year course at an agricultural college. Through George, Alfred gained access to the supposedly higher-classed folks on the island, and while he had plenty of girlfriends, they never wanted to introduce him to their parents. Which, by the way, was fine by him. One day, while eating at the island's tennis club, a man approached Alfred and said a lovely woman wanted to meet him. Alfred joined the man's table and learned the woman accompanying him was Alfred's mother. She invited him to visit her sometime in France, where she lived year-round. Soon after, Alfred announced at dinner with his paternal family that he'd had the pleasure of meeting the mother that they had all told him for so long was dead. He said, I found her to be a stunning woman. Alfred's father was not pleased. He clenched his fists and said, her or me. In the true smart-ass fashion of a young adult traumatized throughout his childhood, Alfred replied sarcastically, Quote, I am certain that you do not mean what you have said. I was raised in a Jesuit school, a devout Catholic. I am certain you could not ask me to pass judgment on my parents, End quote. Alfred's father stormed from the table, and the two never saw each other again. Alfred formally dropped his father's surname and adopted his mother's family name as a rebuke. Harry Oakes, Alfred's future father-in-law, had a very different upbringing. He was born in eighteen seventy five in Sangerville, Maine, as one of five children to William and Edith Oakes. William was a prosperous lawyer who went to great lengths to provide whatever he could to his children, which meant that Harry went to a private preparatory school called Foxcroft Academy before moving on to a private liberal arts college in eighteen ninety six After that, he spent two years at Syracuse University Medical School. But becoming a doctor wasn't his destiny. He was more interested in digging for gold. In 1898, when Harry Oakes was 24 years old, he bailed on med school to go to Alaska during the Klondike Gold Rush. You might think his parents would have been disappointed, what with spending all that money on their son's education only to have him drop-kick it in favor of looking for quick riches? But Harry's family actually helped fund his excursions.
1: For the next 15 years, Harry Oakes roamed the world, prospecting in Australia and California, before striking lucky in northern Canada.
0: That's from an episode of Great Crimes and Trials of the 20th Century, a 1990s History Channel series. Harry finally found what he'd been looking for in northern Ontario, as explained in a video posted by Views on the News.
2: He hits it big. How big is this? He hits the second largest gold mine in the Americas. The second largest? He stumbles on
0: this in Canada. He found the gold on land he bought near Kirkland Lake.
1: There he found a seam of gold some 40 foot thick and miles long. By 1921, Oakes's Lakeshore mine was in full production making him one of the richest men in the world. The lonely years as a struggling prospector had made Oakes an abrupt and gruff person, but he could be enormously generous with his wealth.
0: Now, you might not think of Canada when you hear the phrase gold rush, but you probably should.
3: By 1930, Ontario had become the world's second largest producer of gold, and Toronto was well on its way to becoming the global centre of the mining industry.
0: That's Charlotte Grey, author of the book Murdered Midas. Harry
3: Oakes, who had managed the unique accomplishment of developing and retaining ownership of his own private gold mine, who had become tagged in the newspaper as the richest man in the British Empire, and who had been created a baronet for various acts of philanthropy.
0: Harry had always been one of those rough on the outside, gooey on the inside types of guys. Though some people found his exterior to be impenetrable, not so Eunice McIntyre, a young woman from Sydney, Australia, who met Harry on a cruise around 1921. When he was 48, Eunice was just 24. The two married in 1923 and had the first of their five children with Nancy, who was born in 1925. The remaining four offspring came in quick succession with the youngest born in 1932. It was around this time that Harry Oakes got fed up with North America because of its dagnabbit taxes. There's a thing about the super rich. They really hate paying taxes. This is
3: nothing new. Harry Oakes really resented paying taxes on the wealth, even though it was acquired from Canadian rock.
0: Harry was no exception. With his job making him some $8 million a year, he routinely griped in public Not just about what he had to pay annually in Canadian taxes, but also what he would have to pay after death. Inheritance taxes were exorbitant in his view. And at the start of the 1930s, he was lured to Nassau,
3: the capital of the British colony of the Bahamas, by a smooth-talking real estate
0: agent named Harold Christie. Christie was shrewd and knew how to structure things so that, if Harry moved to the island, he would pay nothing in income tax. This was too alluring a prospect for Harry, who headed to the Bahamas in the mid 1930s. At first, the place seemed an absolute paradise where Harry, as one of the richest men in the world and certainly the richest on the islands, wielded significant power. He had no idea how much danger, that put him in. When Harry Oakes moved his wife and five children out of Ontario, it was big news. In fairness, though, that's not just because of the Oaks' name or his money. It wasn't even because by this time he'd donated enough dough to British hospitals that he had been granted the title of Sir Harry Oaks. Oaks' move made news because it was part of a bigger exodus. He wasn't the only person pissed about the tax rates in Canada. A 1938 story in the province newspaper lamented that 144 Canadians, all reputed to be immensely rich, had recently created personal corporations in the Bahamas to escape taxes. Oaks was highlighted in that story, though, because he said that one day after struggling for months with a bronchial infection, he did the math and realized that if he died in Canada, his family would actually owe the government $4 million. He said, quote, "...counting my wealth and subtracting that from what was left of my other commitments when duties were paid, I would be leaving my family in the red." End quote. He estimated it cost him more than $17,000 a day in taxes just to live in Canada. The Winnipeg Tribune ran a full-page story about Harry's uprooting with the subhead, Harry Oaks, finds tax-free paradise. Another upside to living in the Bahamas, the story noted, was the climate. Harry seemed to be breathing better in the Bahamas' capital of Nassau than he had been in Canada. The Bahamas were pretty similar to Alfred de Marigny's Glorious Mauritius, at least on paper.
2: The Bahama Islands viewed from the sky are colorful as opals.
0: This is from a very fun 1940s travel reel called Overnight to Nassau.
2: Nassau is a little island city tucked away in the ocean. Its palm-fringed harbor looks like a huge emerald set in a turquoise sea. Only 70 minutes ago, we were in Miami, and now with the speed of a magic carpet, we have been transplanted to these languorous, sunny isles where a glorious holiday awaits.
0: But the Bahamas' bloody history puts that of Mauritius to shame. From De DeMarigny's book, A Conspiracy of Crowns, quote, Nassau and the other islands of the Bahamian archipelago had a long history of robbery, cruelty, and murder, end quote.
2: The Bahamas were discovered by Columbus in 1492, claimed by Spain, taken by England, and constantly plundered by pirates. Fort Fincastle played its historic part when Nassau was a center of attacks from freebooters and pirates who preyed upon the treasure ships of old Spain.
0: Its early inhabitants were pirates who not only ignored attempts to establish laws on the land, but once responded to an administrator sent from London to bring order to the place by roasting him on a spit. The pirates were notorious for luring ships toward the land, watching as the ships got damaged by reefs, and then mercilessly attacking those on board. I mean, we're talking blood-soaked beaches, corpse-filled bays, really ugly stuff, which strangely the travel reel doesn't mention at all. Over the centuries, the Bahamas slowly but surely embraced some rules and lots of enslaved people. The Europeans were so terrified of the non-white folks that there were strict rules. From a conspiracy of crowns again, quote, To relieve their fears that the races would mingle, producing an inferior breed, they adopted a form of apartheid. Under no circumstances could a Black remain in the settlements after sundown under penalty of being shot on sight. End quote. In short, there was a stark divide between the races that hadn't let up by the time the Oaks family called it home. By then, the general breakdown on the island went something like this. Most white people living there were rich business folk. Mixed-race people were lawyers, doctors, teachers, civil servants, that sort of thing. And, as Alfred de Marigny put it in his book, quote, Negroes worked as domestics and small shopkeepers, end quote. Maybe it's just me, but I feel like you can pick up some racist subtext in the travel reel, too.
2: Here, dirty little native boats from all the surrounding islands bring their wares to market. Fish... Sponges, lumber, fruit, and vegetables comprise their main produce, but all types of native articles and handicraft are to be found. For many native families, these boats are homes, and happy homes at that, for the rugged, contented natives are born
0: to the sea. Anyway, once he was settled, Harry Oaks was a bigwig on the island. He and a handful of other wealthy white businessmen tightly controlled power. The group was
1: known as the Bay Street Boys, after Nassau's Main Street, where most of them had their offices.
0: And they included the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, who had just arrived to the Bahamas to serve as governor and first lady. Now, theirs was an interesting but pertinent backstory. See, the Duke was the firstborn son of England's King George V. As the firstborn son, who, by the way, was born Edward Albert Christian George Andrew Patrick David, he ascended to the throne when his dad died after several years of declining health. He'd been well-liked as Prince of Wales and had witnessed trench warfare serving during World War I. He had dainty features with soft eyes that seemed to woo the ladies, especially ladies who were already married. I kid you not, one of his married lovers ended up murdering her own husband after the prince broke up with her. That might be its own episode. Anyway, the prince's love affairs had not pleased his father, but they also didn't inherently stand in the way of him inheriting the throne. So when George V died in 1936, the prince became King Edward VIII. Just months into his reign, Edward proposed marrying, which on its own wasn't problematic, but his choice of bride ruffled feathers. He had fallen in love with a married woman named Wallace Simpson, an American who had divorced her first husband and was still married to her second husband when the king suggested she be his queen. This sparked a crisis because not only was it unorthodox and scandalous, but it conflicted with Edward's role as the titular head of the Church of England, which refused to acknowledge remarriages following a divorce if the former spouse still had a pulse. While a Simpson's soon-to-be ex-husband was still very much alive, Edward was forced to make a choice, and so he abdicated the throne. His reign fell short of a year at 326 days, after which he was named Duke of Windsor and was at first stationed in France until it fell to the Nazis in 1940. That was, of course, controversial on its own, but it didn't help matters that word was spreading that the Duke just might be a Nazi sympathizer. And those rumors were perhaps founded.
1: Exiled from the kingdom he used to rule, Edward VIII, now the Duke of Windsor and his wife, traveled to Germany on the invitation of Adolf Hitler.
0: This is from a documentary called Blood on the Palms by a company called Expedition Free Will.
1: The two were received as royals and quickly became friends with the likes of Ernan Goring and the Fuhrer himself, even staying at his personal mountain retreat in the Alps, all while the Germans were preparing for war. When World War II broke out, it's no secret that the Duke publicly supported appeasement with the Nazis. Hell, he even did a worldwide radio broadcast calling for it.
0: Conveniently, a lot of this was overlooked at the time because people liked the romantic tale of the lovesick king who couldn't bear to give up the woman he adored. That's the story he told, as you can hear in his abdication address.
2: That I have found it impossible to carry the heavy burden of responsibility without the help and support of the woman... I love.
0: The emphasis basically created a fairy tale narrative that distracted people from looking much deeper at the king. It also cast Wallace Simpson as the villain of the story, so even people interested in digging a little were usually looking into her, not him. Here are a few voices from a recent BBC Select documentary. That
1: twisted ideology of nazism that appealed to him.
2: His arm went up like that, you know.
3: Vague sort of salute. It wasn't talked about. I'm utterly fascinated by what's coming to light now.
0: Anyway, in an effort to distance this increasingly problematic man from the British Empire, the royal family shipped him and his missus to the Bahamas, where they would oversee as governor and first lady. It was not considered a plum role. It was more of a banishment. Either way, the Duke found like-minded people in the Bahamas, and he had an endgame in mind, per the BBC.
1: This is a man who will stop at nothing to usurp the throne. Edward wanted to come back as a Nazi-installed leader.
0: As in, his hope was that Hitler would win, and his mustache buddy would install Edward as king again in a newly Germany-allied Britain, which is why the Duke generally fit in with others in the Bahamas. A number of the super wealthy white men who lived there were all for Hitler's brand of evil, though they surely didn't see it as such at the time. They just argued that it was a-okay to arrest Jewish people from their homes and force them into concentration camps. And if they weren't particularly kind to other people of color, particularly the majority black populace on the islands, well, that's just because they were of the opinion that one race was better than the other. And doesn't everyone have a right to their opinion? Slash S for sarcasm in case that wasn't clear. Now, I don't know how Harry Oaks felt about all of this. In fairness to him, he had done a lot of backbreaking, life-risking work in his years looking for gold. And he worked alongside plenty of people that other Richies deemed lesser. Remember that story I mentioned about Oakes settling into the Bahamian life after moving there? As part of that package, there's a photo of him with a machete working in the fields alongside a dark skinned companion, looking as equals. Contrasted with that was the attitude the Duke reportedly had of his new island mates from views on the news again.
2: And he hated it. He hated his time in the Bahamas.
0: He considered the people beneath him, the country dirty, his palace unacceptable. Oaks, who'd already set up shop by then, actually put the Duke and Duchess up in one of the homes he owned on the island so that their official residence could get incredibly expensive renovations. And there was only one thing that the Duke seemed to hate as much as his living arrangement in the Bahamas, and that was Alfred de Marigny. The disdain was mutual.
2: Marigny and he hated each other. Again, this is all important. Marigny went so far to tell the Duke of Windsor to his face that he was a pimple on the ass of the British Empire. The Duke of Windsor fired back some things right at the Count Marigny, and these two despised each other.
0: Alfred did not kowtow to royalty. He refused to use the Count title that he had inherited from his mother's side of the family and in fact was embarrassed when his second wife had insisted on introducing herself as a countess. When he arrived in the Bahamas, he told the local newspapers not to use the title, too. When he married Nancy Oakes, he wrote up a document forfeiting any marital rights to her father's estate should he die. He had some shady business dealings of his own, which is probably why he was drawn to the Bahamas in the first place, But it was along the lines of keeping some of his money spread across various countries. More or less shell company stuff, not Nazi sympathizing stuff. That said, just a quick tangent because I found it super interesting. In his memoir, which I've already cited, A Conspiracy of Crowns, he described helping Jewish people in life risking ways, as in traveling to Germany with fake documents and pretending to be a Jewish woman's new husband to get her across the border to safety. He also rented vacation homes in the Bahamas to Jewish people when no one else would, infuriating other powerful players on the islands. Alfred was a straight up rebel, and yet, at some point, he was courted by some Nazi sympathizers who took him to one of Hitler's speeches, and he went because he was curious and also trying not to draw too much attention to himself as anti-Hitler because, as he put it, he had, quote, traveled all over Europe and I saw the immediate future. Its name was Adolf Hitler. The newspapers were filled with stories of Hitler's victory in the German elections. He was no longer a figure of comic relief, end quote. Alfred watched one of the man's speeches. He said that when Hitler approached the podium, he looked ridiculous. He was short, his uniform fit poorly, he wore no medals besides the Iron Cross, his hair and his postage stamp-sized mustache were absurd. Yet Alfred wrote that once the guy started speaking, quote, Hitler's whole personality changed. The force of his expression, the conviction in his speech were hypnotic. That silly little man towered over that vast assembly. As Hitler swept the crowd into his act, I found myself shouting Heil with the rest of them, without realizing I was doing so, and in spite of the contempt I felt. Worse yet, I had no idea what he was saying. End quote. I found that interesting. Anyway, Alfred and the Duke butted heads on all sorts of issues, one of the biggest being Alfred's support from a group of seven refugees who had arrived from Devil's Island. They were all men of color, two were gay, and Alfred insisted they be treated well. Harold Christie, one of Oakes' friends, led a campaign to dispose of the men by putting them in jail, but Alfred fought for them, said they were human beings and had rights, and he won. The men ultimately integrated into the community, and when one of the men later got married, Alfred provided the dowry. In another conflict, Alfred dug a well on his land for fresh water and decided to pipe it to native citizens. A rich lady building a house next to Alfred appealed to the Duke. Wouldn't it make much more sense to have that fresh water sent to my house? After all, these people have been living without it for so long, they won't know what they're missing. The Duke tried to persuade Alfred, who balked. Nope, he said. If that woman wants fresh water, she can dig her own well. All of this is to explain that the Duke and Alfred weren't exactly pals when gruesome news tore through the Bahamas on July 8, 1943. Harold Christie said he had stayed overnight as a guest and awoke to a horrifying scene. Harry was dead in his bed. Blood dripped across his face, and most disturbing of all, his body was partially burned. The flames focused on his genitals and his eye sockets. That immediately eliminated any question that the death might have been self-inflicted. No, it was quite clear that Sir Harry Oaks had been murdered. And, as we'll explore next episode, the Duke of Windsor quickly stepped in to solve the case. To research this story, I read A Conspiracy of Crowns, written by Alfred de Marigny, with Mickey Herskowitz. This case was recommended by several Crimes of the Century listeners, including Official Sarah B. 2.0. Thanks for the suggestion. I hadn't planned on it being a two-parter when I started writing, but there are so many layers to this case that it was meant to be. For sourcing, I also listened to talks by author Charlotte Gray, who wrote Murdered Midas, A Millionaire, His Gold Mine, and A Strange Death on an Island Paradise. Tip of the cap as well to views on news and great crimes and trials of the 20th century. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries Podcast Facebook page.